Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending December 31st, 2020, closing out the year. Happy New Year's, Happy New Year's Eve. And this is our 63rd episode of the video cast, 53rd episode of the podcast. So I'd like to kick it off as we always do with our media spots where we condense a lot of information in a short period of time. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Yolaiwan Haryana and Maria Katerina for having me on CNBC Indonesia on Monday. They gave me the whole half hour of the closing bell uh, from 4.30 to 5 o'clock their time, p.m. It was 4.30 to 5 o'clock a.m. our time, so it was an early uh, morning for sure. And, but we covered quite a lot of, of subjects. The, the most important thing was obviously the uh, signing of the coronavirus relief bill for $900 billion. And this is critical because uh, one component in there, the $300 billion for small businesses, worked so well in the CARES Act uh, that they did the exact same thing, another $300 billion. And of PPP, that's going to be phenomenal. The they're doing um, $600 direct checks for um, uh, lower income households, which will be phenomenal. Uh, $300 a week extensions for unemployment, and $15 billion for airlines, which is going to bring back tens of thousands of workers off of furlough. So that that was very very positive. And uh, she wanted to know kind of what would be the general impact and, and with the market up, you know, close to 70% off the lows now um, of March, uh, how does that look moving forward? And I said, you know, it, it would be natural in Q1 at some point in Q1 to get some consolidation uh, of these gains and some digestion of these gains before uh, moving higher in the back half. Um, but on balance, this package is very, very stimulative. And, and if you just do the math, 2.3 trillion out of the CARES, another 900, that's uh, 3.2 trillion dollars. Uh, it's it's big numbers. I mean, that's 15% of GDP. We contracted about three and a half percent. So um, you know, you have uh, a 750 billion dollar contraction, 3.2 trillion dollars of solution. And then another $3 trillion of liquidity from the Fed, I think, as these vaccines really roll out. And now we're up to $3 million, so they're behind schedule, but it's picking up. Uh, the rate of change is increasing, and I think we're, they're going to catch up very, very soon. Everyone is on the same page. The vaccines are actually at the states. It's a little problem with administration, but they'll get it, they'll get it done. Maybe uh, Walgreens will kick in there. I know we've talked about that the last couple of uh, months. And, uh, and and be involved along with CVS and, and get this thing cranking. So, uh, so that was about the U.S. economy. Then she asked about the dollar. They're always very interested in currencies, commodities, metals in, in the emerging markets. And uh, she asked if the downtrend would continue. The interesting thing about the U.S. dollar is it looks set up to continue. However, I, I noted the commitments of traders report that come out on Fridays from the Commodities Futures Trading Commission show that um, commercials, which are the smart money, have been buying lately. So they, they're usually ahead of the curve. If you see here... Um, the last time they were buying, you, you know, you had a little more weakness, but then you got a, a bounce here. Same thing. The dollar regains strength. Same thing. Regains strength. Same thing. It's not foolproof by any measure, but I, I did say that, you know, 
it, it it's it wouldn't be surprising if we got a counter trend move uh, in you know maybe the first quarter or so where you see a bounce in the dollar strength because you have record net shorts from hedge fund and large traders uh, and usually when a trade gets that crowded you're gonna get a little bit of a squeeze and I think the commitments of traders points to that um, and that would also um, uh, you know probably put a little little bit of pressure on uh, gold um, a counter trend move so you'd have a counter trend goal move in uh, the US dollar which would be a bounce of strength in, in you know the next three to six months and you'd have a counter trend move in gold which has been going up as the dollar strengthens gold would 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 be weak on that type of situation so um, so that was that. Then she asked about the China economy, where industrial profit was up 15.5% on the year. I said, you know, the recovery is real. There are a couple of months ahead of us. Not only were their industrial profits up, but in December, their exports were up 22%. That's a great sign for the world. Retail sales were up 5%. They had struggled with that until the summer. They turned the corner and loan growth is up 12%. That's the key thing that we need to see in the United States, which is why I've been harping on uh, let the banks lend, lift the asset cap for Wells Fargo uh, and uh, one of the largest lenders in the country. Uh, and that'll lead to our sustainable recovery as well and then she said uh, she asked me about uh, is this recovery in China good for emerging markets and will uh, foreign investors get aggressive in emerging markets now I've been going on her show for uh, about six months now they have me about once a month for the half hour and over the summer I was pounding the table they were very skeptical I said look Maria, buy Indonesia, buy emerging markets. And, uh, you know, they have young demography. They're, you know, emerging markets flows with weaker dollar, uh, lower rates, um, better commodities. And, um, and now it's up, the JCI is up 60% off the bottom. So I was joking with her, you know, now you're asking me in, in the summer you wanted nothing to do with it. And now, now that it's up, you're, you want to buy. But uh, I think this is going to be a secular trend similar to the early 2000s. And um, this is actually in line. Uh, uh, John, who, who, send, who owns the newspaper group out in Ohio, he often sends in ask me anything questions. So I'm going to tie this in. John had asked, uh, uh, Thomas, thanks for the great info throughout 2020. Looking forward to your thoughts in 2021. You've been, you've been mentioning emerging markets for some time now. Number one, is it too late to participate them, in them? And number two, what are some options for investing in emerging markets? So let's just take a step back and look at the longer term picture, uh, both for John and what I told Maria on Monday. Um, so this is this red line is the emerging markets indices. So it's a compilation of you know the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, some of the Indo, you know uh, Indonesia's, the Vietnam's, etc. And what's interesting about this is they had this huge run along with commodities and oil in the early 2000s after tech peaked. So. Um, and money rotated into cyclicals. And I think we're set up in a lot of different ways in a similar fashion as to how we were set up in the early 2000s. I think the commodity um, complex is going to really start to take off. 
And what I have in the background here, you can see how closely emerging markets trades. The, black the red line is emerging markets index, which covers all the countries that I was talking about. The black line, I have the energy sector stocks. I could have even put uh, WTI crude but um, or Brent, doesn't matter. But um, they trade basically with energy. They trade very closely with commodities. So I think both of these are going to be hand in hand. As you, if you've listened to me for some time, you know I've been, you know, um, banks, defense stocks, and energy. And I think energy is going to have a huge thing. And I think this is all going to be tied in with. Um, with emerging markets. So how I would think about this, if you know, we don't have this emerging markets uh, much further back, this, this is an ETF instrument. But basically when tech was booming the last few years of 2000, you had emerging markets and commodities really grinding sideways in this wide range and doing nothing. And when it finally broke out, they, it just went for four or five years and it was the biggest emerging markets and commodities run in a long, in, in history actually. And now we have a longer consolidation where emerging markets and commodities have basically been, uh, certainly energy stocks have been consolidating sideways for over a decade and they've just broken out. So this is actually, now, you know, when you do breakouts, um, you know, it's not uncommon to have a, a retest. So you, you know, you broke out here at whatever it was, 45, 48. This is the EEM to answer John's question. That's one way you can play the emerging markets. It's just an ETF called EEM. Vanguard has one called uh, VWO. I think it's a little, uh, a little bit less uh, fees. But uh, the key here is even if you did get a breather here and you retested the breakout for a few months, uh, you know, down in the 45, 46 range, which I don't know if we will or we won't, but it's a possibility. Uh, I think the long-term trend, I think we're just breaking out uh, similar to what we saw here in 2003. And I think the move could really persist for some time. I think uh, commodities are going to persist in a major way. And, um, and and you definitely want to have some involvement. So whether you buy it here and it retraces 10% and you just hang on and, and take the long view, uh, or if you try to get cute and wait for some weakness in uh, mid to late Q1 uh, and maybe you have a chance to pick up more, probably the better way to do it is do a starter position. You know, if you're worried it's run too much without you, you know, maybe buy a third or a half of what you'd want to buy. And if you get some weakness, buy another half and then, you know, just put it in the drawer, so to speak, and don't even think about it for three years. And then you can start exploring when it's up double from here. Um, so so that's that. Now, why emerging markets? So it's it's not just, oh, it's breaking out on the chart. I mean, why, why are we interested? First and foremost, emerging markets countries are ahead of us in terms of the COVID recovery. They got it earlier. They came through it earlier. And that's even before the vaccine. So now you couple that, they're going to get a lot of the AstraZeneca vaccine in, in the emerging market countries. I think it's a bit uh, less expensive, but they'll get it out quickly. It was just approved in the UK for use. So um, so that's number one. They've recovered quickly. They're going to have the vaccine. Uh, three, interest rates are near lows. That, that scenario will start to change, but we had that scenario also in 2003, 4, 5, 6. 
uh, rates were starting, the yield curve was steepening, rates were going up, banks were doing great. We're having the similar type of scenario, but we're starting from a very low base and that's when these things kick off is when those rates are extremely low and then as they rise the growth is going the demand for capital is growing that's why rates go up because you have growth and you have demand for capital uh and the same thing is going to happen here so the rate rate policy is is in a good position uh with a biden administration you're going to have easier trade policy that also favors the emerging markets the us dollar although we could get that counter trend move the trend is still lower that also favors emerging markets i think that's going to persist um you know we have you know close to 120 debt to gdp which we're going to cover in the article that's actually not a bad thing but that'll keep the dollar subdued for some time which will help us with trade help us with earnings uh commodities will go up um and uh and then the other thing is earnings for the emerging markets uh, as a whole are going to grow 25 percent in 2021 uh which is a bit more than in the u.s uh, is going to grow i think about 22 percent and although that keeps going up every week and managers are dramatically underweight emerging markets so uh, compared to their benchmark. So the long-term average is about 9% allocation. Just to get back to that long-term average, and remember, when things are extreme, it always overshoots on the downside, which it has, and it will overshoot on the uptime, uh, upside. But just get, get back to that 9% historic allocation. You're talking about $350 billion of fun, fund flows into emerging markets, which is actually a lot, could be a lot more. Uh, and that's that's the positioning reason for getting exposure to emerging markets. And then finally, it's the virtuous cycle. The, the fundamentals improve, like we're seeing the earnings growth, the multiples are then gonna expand, the cost of capital for companies in the emerging markets is gonna go down, and it's just gonna attract more capital, and then you see moves like you saw here. Um, so, uh, and then lastly, they have more favorable population growth and demographics, much younger on, on balance, and uh, growing population, those are two factors that uh, bode extremely well uh, in, in, uh, in economies and the emerging markets have it in spades. So those were kind of the core reasons. Then she asked me what uh, sectors are still interesting, what, what sectors are interesting in emerging markets. And I said it's actually a universal phenomenon. I think you we're, we're moving from the stay at home of 2020 to the reopening of 2021, in which case managers now have many more options where they can buy earnings growth. They no longer have to pay through the nose to get the handful of stocks that did well during COVID, uh, i.e. FANG plus Microsoft. And now they have cyclicals, banks uh, are going to have earnings growth, energy, industrials, uh, defense stocks, which is defense and aerospace is a subsector of industrials. Uh, so they're going to be able to buy those laggards and the laggards of today will be the leaders of tomorrow. And that's a huge, huge opportunity uh, globally. So it's not just in the developed market. It, it'll also be in emerging markets. And then she kept asking me about uh, uh, EVs and um energy, coal, oil and gas. So I had had to repeat a few times, oil and gas. <laughs> and then she asked me, well, what about ESG? All these managers are selling it. And I said, that's exactly what happens every cycle. It's just a new reason. This time the reason is ESG. Uh, but the point is, is managers sell things when they uh, don't work. And they often dump out 
at their final gasp of breath at the exact bottom. And then what happens is, even if they don't want the sector, as it doubles, they're going to have to chase up. And then the narrative will be, well, we still need it to bridge our way to um, a carbon-free world. Uh, we need to use these for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Oh, and by the way, we haven't had any major uh, investment in the last five years, and we actually have a supply problem. Demand is now doubling off of COVID, and they start chasing. Plus, you've flushed out a lot of the weak sisters, and a lot of the small companies have gone bankrupt. So now you've got the big players with increasing demand, diminished supply, and take a huge amount of time and investment to catch up to where they need to be to meet that supply. You've got a growing population with social mobility in the emerging markets and, um, and a long runway until we, we um, get to renewables to the level where they can actually put a dent in the demand for uh, energy. So, um, uh, so yeah, it's just a natural case. You know, most managers, how they justify it at the moment, well, what do I have to worry about? It's only 2, 2.5%, 2.3% of the S&P. Well, it's going to revert back. And when it's 5 and 7 and 9% over the next three to five years, as the sector doubles and triples, if you didn't have exposure, you're going to dramatically underperform your benchmark. So, so the narrative will be that the how they'll justify it after justifying the selling as something other than performance namely we're selling because we want a carbon free world they'll actually um be able to say on the way up well the the uh carbon based companies that are left they have these long term plans they're you know uh, doing they're they're doing carbon capture they're doing responsible things in the environment they'll t they'll cite bp has their whole plan how to be carbon neutral in whatever it is 40 years and they'll justify that these companies have all made the changes and that justifies them now reinvesting after they're up 100 uh, percent and being consistent with why they sold but fundamentally what it has to do with is uh the performance was bad they puked it out they didn't think it mattered because it was 2.5% of the weight as it, as it grows and they start lagging their benchmarks. They'll chase up and there'll be a new narrative to why it's okay to invest in energy stocks. And it'll have nothing to do with the fact that they've doubled and tripled over the next couple of years. It'll have to do with they're doing it in a more responsible way than they did in the past. They have capital discipline now, which, by the way, will be true, uh, at least in the early part of the cycle when they're doubling and tripling. Then they'll get loose when Wall Street opens back up to them and can't lend them enough money to drill holes in the ground. But that's years from now. In the meantime, this is a really a tremendous secular uh, a cyclical opportunity uh, for the next three to five years, and I think it's going to be phenomenal. So, um, and then finally, um, da -da -da -da. oh, what she asked me about, you know, with the new rising stars like uh, tech, tech stars like Zoom and Airbnb and um, DoorDash, what do you think is the phenomenon? We've covered that in recent weeks. The phenomenon is very simple. It's called abundance of demand, scarcity of supply. The bankers do it on purpose. They um, offer less than 10% of the available float and, um, and then people chase up and they can't get enough. And now that's going to change because one of the solutions I covered a couple weeks ago on CGTN 
was that the way to do this is just to do more of the direct listings. The reason they weren't doing the direct listings is because they couldn't offer additional shares to raise capital. But surprisingly enough, this week they made that announcement through the New York Stock Exchange that not only could you do a direct listing where you offer the shares, um, but you can um, offer new shares to raise capital at the same time which I think is going to be just a phenomenal thing moving forward, which is one of the reasons that I really like Wells Fargo. Many, many managers are saying, well, I want the diversified ones that have all of the uh, banking exposure, which is not a predictable income stream. I think this is going to cut into the investment banking profits moving forward. I think the lending business is just getting started with millennials, buying, with housing formation, and that trend is going to be good. I want exposure to, um, you know, Big mortgage lenders like Bank of America, like Wells Fargo. And then, you know, some of the new IPOs are kind of interesting. The, the Gore's SPAC uh, and the uh, Rocket companies are, are also kind of interesting. But um, but the big banks are, are core because they've already got the foothold and they've got the... Inf so long story short, um, that's why those companies are booming. I think that's going to level off a little bit as more money comes into cyclicals and managers can make money investing in the laggards, which is going to happen. The more vaccines every week when we get a new milestone and it goes from 3 million to 5 million vaccines to 10 million vaccines to 30 million vaccines, what's going to happen is... And people are thinking that you have to get to 70% and then it's a binary event and then cases go down. But that's not the case. It, it's a rate of change. So effectively, each time you add 5 million more vaccinated people, you reduce the pool from which the host can attach to, which is huge. So you can keep reducing one side of the equation. Those cases are going to start to plummet even before we hit 70% herd immunity, which is going to give people more confidence and get them back to regular activity much sooner than I think even springtime. We'll see. But um, but I think that's something to really look forward to here. So we'll, we're going to see that accelerate. I, I would imagine they'll get 20 million done by, by the end of January, if not sooner. I think, you know, it's just the normal short term hiccups. And then uh, you probably have, you know, 20 million other cases. So that would be 40 million people exposed and then probably another 50 million people that don't even know that they've had it. Uh, so now you're at, you know, 90 million people and you got to get to 70 percent. So you got to get to 200 and change. So you're, you're kind of halfway there probably by, um, you know, mid-February. Uh, and, uh, and, and if it's true that you have to get to 70 to get herd immunity, there's all types of controversy. I've seen reports in Europe that was 20 or 30. I think that's low. I think 70 is probably closer to where you need to be, but, uh, I think we're going to get there a lot sooner than we expect. So thank you to Maria and Yulaiwan for having me on CNBC Indonesia on Monday. Moving right along. So, uh, how can you get involved? VWO, EEM, obviously go to the website terms this is opinion not advice talk to your financial advisor i don't know your situation obviously you're going to have much more volatility in emerging markets than you are in developed markets but over time you can have much more uh returns especially when you're breaking out of this long-term um consolidation for 12 years the the old saying technical saying is the longer the base the higher the space so uh so we could we could see a move i think in in terms of what we saw after this consolidation, we could see a really, really big move with commodity, you know, commodities, the correlation of commodities, which is our underlying thesis, both in the developed and emerging, um, 
and emerging markets is very, very high, and both of those trades can work together. So uh, that's that, that's the dollar. Uh, this video we covered last week about the Santa Claus rally, that's happened, which now bodes well for both January and for the uh, the entire year of 2021 uh, will be double-digit gains. I think the stat is mid-teens. I covered it with uh, Kristen on new on Christmas Eve, so you can watch that now. I had to wait a few days for the video because of the holidays. Uh, that was a good segment worth checking out. Uh, I want to thank Devik Jane and Supriya R for including me in their Reuters article this week, and it was on the day of the uh, day after the stimulus checks. I said the stimulus package represents an economic bridge until full vaccination. It's a very good thing for the economy, for the people who are hurt, uh, and for the stock market. And that was the extent of it. So thank you uh, to Devik and Supriya for including me in that. Now, article on Market Watch. These are the 20 worst performing S&P stocks of 2020. Analysts see double-digit rebounds for six of them in 2021. And this is kind of where I want to be fishing. Um, uh, and where we, we have exposure moving into the new year to take advantage. So this is by sector. Uh, energy was the worst performing sector in 2021. Obviously, it's bounced a ton in the last quarter uh, when we were pounding the table. But still, there's huge opportunity. Real estate, obviously, because of the REITs. Uh, that's also an inflation hedge. I think that's going to be very good moving forward. Financials, uh, utilities, staples, and then industrials. So uh, you could almost think of the sectors in some sense like the dogs of the Dow strategy where you buy the five worst performing Dow stocks and they tend to outperform over time uh, on balance. You know, I think we're going to have a similar situation in 2021 where if you have exposure to energy, some real estate and financials, you know, we're really big into energy and financials uh, and it, Industrials were on the subsector. We like defense stocks here and uh, defense and aerospace. We think those are, are subdued and they're really going to uh, start to lead in 2021. Um, so those are by sectors. And then they have all the companies that have done well, uh, poorly, obviously the cruise ships and some of the airlines and a lot of the energy stocks. And then you've got Wells Fargo here, which has obviously had a huge run in the last couple of months. And it looks like that's going to persist. Uh, got down as low as 20. Now it's up, uh, I think it closed over 30. So close to 50% in the last seven or eight weeks. Um, and then... Um, so that's that. And then what they do after they take the worst performing stocks, which, you know, with, with some of these energy names, the bigger the better at this point in the, the game. There'll probably be still a decent amount that go bankrupt. So you want to be bigger in size. And I, I would say that's probably the case for all of these, whether it's cruises or energy stocks or airlines. Just go with the biggest, best, most solid balance sheets. Uh, but what they're the argument that they're making is the analyst community's buy ratings on these um, laggard stocks. Those are kind of the best bang for the buck because, you know, these analysts have covered them and they've looked at their financials. So he's basically saying that you've got, um, you know, uh, Vernado, well, um, Devin, Valero, Valero's a refiner. EOG, Simon Property Group, American Airlines, Wells Fargo, and Vornado. You know, 
uh, and then Apache is a gas company. So you, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I'll tell you, uh, and then Royal Caribbean and National Oil Well Varco. <laughs> it would be interesting to see if someone did a portfolio of these 10 stocks, if they had a solid stomach, because this type of portfolio would probably bounce around by 20 to 30% upside and downside before it finally took off. And maybe one out of the 10 would wind up going bankrupt. But my guess is you'd probably outperform the S&P uh, you know, by at least, uh, certainly if, if you, if you can measure over a two to three year period, you'd probably outperform it by like 400 base, uh, uh, probably by 30, 35% over three or four years. If you did, if you just grab 10 of these stocks, the problem with that is you're going to be way too overweight energy, uh, you don't have any diversification. I love the Wells Fargo's in here with the with the good uh, analyst buy ratings, which have been kicking in over the last six weeks. But you'd want to diversify. But it's the concept that's that's key here. As we reopen, the laggard sectors and stocks of 2020 are now going to have an opportunity to outperform, and that's only natural. We had an analyst come out this week from Raymond James that upgraded Wells Fargo to a $35 price target. Uh, on the basis that it's an ESG improvement story. I mean, it's unbelievable. When we talk about opinion follows trend, this is just a manager chasing up that does, uh, not a manager, an analyst chasing up that doesn't have anything else to say about it, but it's it's just risen to his past price target and now he's got to take it up because it's gone quicker, further than he could have imagined because sentiment was so poor on it just two months ago, and now it's up 50%. They've got to raise their price targets. And we're going to see more and more of this raising of price targets in the energy sector, in defense and aerospace, and in uh, banks and financials. So take advantage of it. This was just one two days ago. Uh, here's one in, from KeyBank on Continental Resources, which is um, Harold Hamm's play, energy play. He upgraded it. And uh, there was also some insider buying in that uh, two days ago as well from one of the directors worth noting. Again, opinion follows trend. And then Goldman upgraded uh, Marathon, Petroleum, Suncor, and Exxon saying they're oversold. That's all they could think of. It's, it's, it's oversold. Uh, but they're right, uh, except they're all up, you know, 40 some odd percent in the last uh, two months. So, but you know what? There's still plenty of room to run. Go back and look at this, which was we put out two or three months ago in one of our notes. There's plenty of room to run over the next three to five years, even though you've had this monster run in the last couple of months. So, um, so that's that. Now, moving on to the article of the week. Uh, this was the Kenny Chesney Happy Does Stock Market and Sentiment Results. It's not lost on me that there is some obviously pockets of froth and euphoria. Um, what's also not lost, lost on me is how many people know that. So, you know, usually it sounds very smart and sophisticated to say the market's going to crash and there's, you know, it's a top and, um, cause the majority of the street is set up to be long only. So by and large, most people are always saying things are going to go up and what, guess what? By and large, they're right. 70% of the time. But you know, when people come out and say, we're going to crash or we're going to you know, correct. They sound sophisticated and unique and everything else. And 70% of the time they're wrong. However, the, um, the quant quantitative metrics are all pointing to extremes. So now we have to take it seriously. Number one, the metrics are 
are at the levels that would warrant a consolidation and correction, except a lot of people know that. So it's like when everyone is trying to call the same top, it's very tough to get it. It's usually at that point where you get headlines like cash is trash or you better get exposure now after you've had huge runs or this time it's different because you know they'll make up whatever story it is. There's XYZ liquidity, XYZ cash on the sidelines. You have to get in now after a 70% move up. Once those headlines start to hit versus we've run a lot and we have to correct. Once you see this time's different type of things, cash is trash, you're going to regret it. That's when you'll get the trap door to open and you know, you'll get your 10% pullback to, to digest what we've done over the last seven, eight months, which has just been amazing and, and really exciting. So, um, so I like Kenny's lyrics, laugh and live with a half full cup. Yeah, happy is as happy does. It's worth listen if you're a country fan. Um, so an example is, you know, what I said in the article is the difficulty of predicting the short-term top is, is when everyone's trying to do the same thing. They're, everyone is aware of the froth in certain pockets, whether it's SPACs, IPOs, some tech stocks. Um, and while the quantitative indicators support some consolidation, the question is, from where? Uh, and, and I told this anecdote, a long-term, uh, long-time buddy of mine who, um, who I've played poker with for many, many years, uh, over a decade now, uh, said that he was going to cash in late September because he thought we'd get a 10 to 15% correction. And the problem was we had just had one in the previous three weeks. And my response was, well, what if you're right and we do get a correction, but it's from 15% higher than where we are now and you're still out? Do you buy up at that point? And, and I think that's kind of what we have to consider. It's, it's almost reminiscent of 2017 to 2018 in, in December. It's like the market kept plowing up. So if you had gotten short in you know mid-December or late November expecting the crash by the time you got the crash you were right except for the fact that it went you know 10-15% against you in the interim and by the time the crash finished you were right back to even so you didn't really get anything and that's kind of the risk that we're in right now because there is still cash on the sidelines um, and we are a bit overheated and we can push a little bit higher. I, I think what we want to be looking out for is um, we want to be looking out for where everyone just throws caution in the wind and it's like all in. No, this is different. And there'll be some reason why it's different. You know, maybe it's some new policy or some new stimulus package or some new development it doesn't matter what it is it's just where everyone goes all in and at that point whether it's you know mid q2 because everyone's been looking for it in december it didn't come in december so now they're looking for it right after the new year people are going to sell uh because of the the uh runoff election or because of the certification or one of those things um you know i i think there'll be a point in january where um 
everyone's all in and the euphoria is really there and people are allocating at the tops and saying things are breaking out and you hear a lot of talk about breakouts, breakouts, breakouts. And that's when they'll open the trap door and we'll probably get the, the consolidation that everyone was looking for after people forget about looking for it. And after the sophisticated people stop going on TV saying we're going to have a you know, correction or crash. Um, and, uh, and that's sometime and that's healthy and that's a great thing. And that'll, that'll set up for the back half, which is, which is a good thing for sure. Um, so, you know, it's likely that we're going to get what everyone's looking for. I think the trick is going to be, it's just not going to be when it's not going to be when everyone expects it or when everyone's looking for it. Um, so people are buying protection on the basis of the Atlanta Senate runoff. Bears are saying that if we have a Democratic win, the corporate taxes are going to go up to 28% and it's going to shave $20 off of S&P earnings. The bulls say, well, that might happen, but if we have the sweep, we'll get a multi-trillion dollar spending package or infrastructure package, which will offset the tax increases. Um, you know, both are right. I, I don't think that a, another stimulus package would offset the impact of tax. I also don't think that uh, it's going to be a sweep. So, so long as the Republicans hold uh, one of them, which I think is high probability, then it's status quo. And that's, uh, that's, that's bullish. Uh, predict it, which, you know, is of questionable use is, is indicating that the Republicans hold it. Um, then bears say this January 6th certification vote could cause volatility. I'm not sure why, as there's a 99.9999% chance that it goes as planned, but with a, you know, quadruple zero point one percent chance it doesn't but with either outcome you would know exactly what you're getting anyway as it relates to the stock market you know what you've had the next four the last four years and you know what you had the eight years before that with the biden uh obama administration so i don't see how the sixth really matters because it only affects the executive branch i think the fifth is more uh consequential and uh obviously a much much higher likelihood of having any type of surprise uh, but even so, I, I think that uh, more likely than not, the insurance purchased will expire without worth. And that's the way that it tends to work out when everyone's making the same type of insurance trade. And they're doing so even with the, with the VIX still quasi-elevated and pricing expensive on that insurance uh, relative to long-term history, not recent history. Um, so that's that. Now, uh, as I said, I covered with Kristen um, the Santa Claus rally. So now that that's happened, as I, I anticipated it would, um, and thanks, by the way, to Kristen Scholler, Ali Thompson, and Cara Fellows for having me on. Uh, now let's take a look forward. And I want to look in the context of um, Ryan Dietrich of LPL put out this data this past week where in the instances where you've had a double-digit rally since World War II for November and December going into year-end, which we just had, what happened in January and then what happened for the rest of the year? And the median uh, return in January was 4.1%. The average was 3%. So in other words, the huge gains in two months actually followed through through January, which was which is also consistent with if Santa comes to town, 
you know, Christmas Eve through the second trading day of January, then um, January is set to be good, as is the rest of the year. And then the following year return, based on having the double digit November, December since World War II, you have an 18.1% average return for which would be 2021 or median of 189 So again, and I think with the Chris, uh, Santa Claus rally, I think the data was like mid-teens. So I think that would be make a lot of sense between 10 and 20% returns in uh, 2021. And that doesn't preclude a normal intra-year drawdown, which average about 14%. So, you know, probably 10, 12%, something like that after having such a big one in 2020. Um, so that, that, that doesn't take that off the table. And that's actually pretty likely. I just don't think it comes as quickly as people are insuring for or on the basis of why they're doing. They're all doing it on the basis of January 5th and 6th, which I think the more likely scenario is a fake out. So it will look like they're winning on the 5th and 6th. Maybe we'll get some weakness or some selling or whatever, or a delayed result from the Senate runoff for a day or two or three where the market gets a little bit weak uh, and then it just rips higher once there's resolution. Uh, and then forces all of the reluctant longs who sold at the bottom in March and, and have been waiting for the big pullback to get back in, which never came, uh, they'll be forced in finally. And at that point, then we can have um, a correction or consolidation. So big mouthful about what could happen in the next two months. And I want to share that it's completely useless information. <laughs> okay, well, then why did I talk about it? Well, here's why it's useless. The most useful thing is to understand the new themes for 2021. And so that you're positioned to benefit for the year, regardless of what corrections, consolidations, or volatility fits come our way. If you get the themes right, you're not going to get knocked out when the wind blows. So, um, so the themes which we covered, it's going to be uh, not zero sum, but I think relative outperformance of the laggards of 2020, which were the re reopening recovery, although they started picking up huge in the last two months, um, relative to tech and, tech and growth. So value cyclicals relative to tech and growth, value and cyclicals should outperform on a relative basis. The others will probably do fine, just not quite as well. Um, and so that's where we want to be focused. And the other data point that was very interesting was Jeffrey's put out a note that got picked up by MarketWatch this week. And, you know, and this is part of the reason that I think people are overestimating the likelihood of an imminent correction. And I've been saying that for the last two weeks because people were looking at for, for, looking for it in December and it never came. Um, that earnings estimates continue to go up every single week. They've gone up pretty much every single week in Q4 for 2021. And that's unusual. Usually they take them down going into earnings season so that a plethora of companies can beat and raise. Uh, in this case, they've had to keep taking them up because estimates keep looking much better than they anticipated. And the last few times that this happened, and so this is uh, Jeffrey's data, where you really had clusters was coming out of 2009, which was the beginning of a new cycle, coming out of 2003, which was the beginning of a new cycle, and the mid-1990s, which you had another five years to run. Um, and what they do is they actually quantify 
that stocks tend to follow through to the upside when these type of revisions happen on a weekly basis in a quarter like we've just had in Q4, the, the revisions going up pretty much every week. And what that looks like in terms of numbers, the average three-month outperformance in the wake of positive revisions is about four and a half percentage points, which bodes well for the S&P in the first quarter of 2021. So um, we'll see if that history holds, but you know, you're talking about 85% uh, percentage of the time it's positive with the mean return in that following quarter of 4.43%. So that's pretty constructive. And the amount of tail risk purchasing in recent weeks related to the political noise um, as identified by SKU, which I'm gonna cover right now, CBOE option SKU, um, uh, I think it makes perfect sense that all those insurance premiums get flushed before we finally do get the countdown. So uh, before we finally do get the consolidation that everyone's looking for. So the skew is basically um, it's it's people buying out of the money options for one and two standard deviation moves. So the best way to think about it is skew measures the pricing of tail risk options buying out of the money options that are one or two standard deviations from the mean uh, over the next 30 days and the primary difference between the VIX and the skew is that the VIX is based on the implied volatility or the pricing uh, around the at the money strike price while skew is the implied volatility of the out of the money, people looking for big catastrophic black swan tail events. Now, this measure uh, oscillates between 100 and 150. The higher the rating, the higher the perceived tail risk and the chance of a black swan event. Um, but when you drill down, uh, what you find is that oftentimes when the skew gets elevated, the event that which was feared either doesn't happen 70% of the time or the 30% of the time or less that it actually does happen, it happens you know, later than anticipated, more than a month after the signal is triggered. So we just traded up to 148 in the last week or so on SKU. This is not an ideal environment where I would ordinarily wanna be adding a lot of index exposure. Um, historically speaking, because even if you don't get a correction, you usually get a sideways pause that refreshes or a consolidation in an uptrend. Um, um, even if you don't get the correction and um, I'm more interested in buying the indices in mass like what you know what we saw in uh, March when skew collapses after a crash and you get down closer to 100 or you know in the teens 100 in teens uh, after you've had a monster crash that's when you really want to start to get index exposure now at these levels you can still get uh, discrete exposure to the types of companies the laggard companies that i'm talking about which uh, can perform because they've been so beaten down that they haven't yet participated but the high beta that have already run those are going to be the ones that that get kneecapped pretty pretty quickly now in this article that i that i noted in um, my article they quote charlie Bellalo, who is on twitter he's definitely worth a follow on twitter and what he said was going back to 1990 
none of the worst declines had a skew index in the prior month that was within the top 5% of historic values. So when actual tail risk was present, skew did not predict it. Now, uh, where I uh, differ on that is if you change it to two months, that conclusion would be different. And that's kind of in line with what I'm talking about here in that, so you've had the skew in the last couple of weeks and people would be looking for this correction and they've all bought tail risk options for January because they're worried about the political event. And my sense is that there's no way those options are going to pay out because the amount that were sold and at the price they were sold. So therefore, um, it would be natural for more than a month to pass after the skew quote unquote signal uh, before you do start to see the weakness in the market and some of the higher beta names get hand, you know kneecapped uh, and that puts us out towards you know mid to end of Q1 uh, and that'll be at the point after we've had a run up and everyone's in where people are saying you know cash is trash you got to get exposure inflate you know you got to be in assets inflation's coming blah 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 that that's when we'll finally get it and this is consistent with what Charlie's saying and with my findings. And I did this chart here showing that the vast majority of the times you do get the elevated skew, uh, oftentimes you get the sideways moves in an uptrend, uh, but only three of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Three of twelve times did you actually get a, a ten percent or more correction. And in all cases, it was more than a month after, one to two months after. Uh, even three months after you got the signal. So, um, you know, having just gotten the signal here, I think this thing could could push higher and skew is one other thing that's lining up uh, pointing to that. Now, the other thing that came this week was uh, this chart from a guy named Joe Fami who posted on Yahoo Finance. And he talked about Marty Zweig's breath thrust indicator and three-day thrust signal, uh, which is interesting because a friend of mine, uh, the late Chuck Bruni, was just an incredible guy. Uh, he started Oppenheimer Capital. He actually managed Milton Friedman's personal uh, assets and Alan Greenspan's personal money. That's how smart Chuck was, uh, and, and he's, uh, he's missed for sure. Uh, but he would always talk fondly of uh, Marty over dinners with me, and I think he was involved with the Zweig funds, I think, as uh, on the board or something as, as a favor to Marty. Um, but so Marty invented the breath thrust indicator. We're not going to go into that. You can just click on the um, Yahoo Finance. But it's basically when the market goes from really oversold to really overbought really, really fast. And 32 of the last 33 times, we got that in early October. So 32 of the last 33 times this occurred, the index was higher one year later by an average of 16%. Again, more and more data points pointing to this kind of mid-teens type of return for 2021. Uh, it doesn't preclude an intra-year drawdown of 10 or you know 15%, but, uh, but that's probably where we end up, mid, mid to high teens. Uh, and this is also in line with other metrics we've shared in this article. And then in November, you got a second thrust. Everyone loves a good thrust. So uh, that was uh, three days in a row. The S&P gained 1.5% in three consecutive days. Then nine other times that happened since 1970 led to strong gains up 14% on average six months later and 22% on average uh, a year later. So over 20%. So uh, again, they're all kind of clustering around this 15 to 20% range. 
and whether you're looking at technical indicators, fundamental indicators, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think that's promising. I did a final word on debt. Everyone's worried about 120% debt to GDP. We had the same rates in uh, the last major war we fought, which was, well, uh, that's not the last major war, but um, you know, uh, post-World War II, we were at 120%. We borrowed huge to fight a visible enemy. Here, we've borrowed huge to fight an invisible enemy. We have uh, debt-to-GDP to ratios of about the same. And you'll see you consolidated sideways during this period, you know, this kind of decade here in the 40s. You got the debt up high, and even so, once we got once we won the war, we just had this huge secular bull run. Same thing here. Debt to GDP ratio got high. We borrowed huge to fight this enemy. We're about to defeat it here in the next few months with the vaccine. And uh, and what's interesting about this debt to GDP ratio by like 1953, it cut in half to like mid 60s. I think 63 percent by like 1954. And the same thing's going to happen. How did it do that? Because you had, you know, huge GDP growth, which we're going to have. I've been talking 5% GDP in 2021. People still look at me like I have three heads. You know, let's see what happens. So, um, you know, uh, 20, $21 trillion globally in the system to cure a $3.5 trillion problem. Uh, I'd be surprised if you didn't see that level of nominal GDP. So nonetheless, uh, that's our, our debt levels currently. I think they're going to be cut in half. And happy is as happy does, as Kenny Chesney would say. Now, the three metrics on sentiment, AAII sentiment, still elevated, went up to 46. Again, just as I have in the past few weeks, in 2018, that forebode a uh, correction of over 10%. I think it was 20% in the NASDAQ, 10 or 15% in the S&P. However, this is reminds me more of the post-election period in 2017 where you did get this off of the um, relief type of sentiment off the nerves going into the election and it led to you know about a 15-month bull market uh, from those elevated levels which were coming off if you remember you had a huge correction in the beginning of 2016 so a very similar template i'm willing to give this the benefit of the doubt even though we have um elevated sentiment levels and as you see here you had some sideways consolidation but the trend was up huge for the, i mean that year the, the biggest correction the whole year was three percent i i'm not sure that we'll have that type of um camelot environment but i will say that it's not it's not off the table and that this elevated sentiment may be different than the elevated sent sentiment we've seen historically like in 2018 fear and greed is now neutral so it's tough to get very bearish when the market is creeping up and sentiment is still skeptical at least this sentiment reader is still skeptical managers dumped out of stocks in the last couple of weeks probably worried about the probably the same ones buying the tail risk for january 5th and that will likely to prove to be a uh, fruitless investment the insurance but we'll see we'll 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 absolutely know in a week uh what we see in the first couple of days who knows i i think we'll probably maybe see a delayed result and we'll have some volatility and people will think that that's it here we go and then it'll get resolved and then everyone will have have to have to chase it um now uh sentiment trader put out this note on twitter uh since okay tech chalk Tech stocks have enjoyed back-to-back -back years with 40% plus gains. Since 1926, 11 other sectors have managed this. During the following year, which would be 2021 in this case, 10 of them declined. The single winner was less than 1% gain. So what he's basically saying here 
is when you have that kind of outperformance for two consecutive years, uh, 10 out of 11 times that sector was negative the following year, even if the market was up. And the one time that it was not, it was only it was up less than 1%. And I, I think you could potentially see something like that in 2021. That's really valuable data from Sentiment Trader. It's in line with what we've been saying since the summer. So I think this could be uh, interesting. Again, more and more things pointing to the central thesis we've been outlining in, in past calls and notes. Um, I think a simpler reason is just look at the earnings. Tech is going to grow at a slower pace than the S&P, and yet the average multiple is 50% higher. So why would you want to pay 50% more for 30% less uh, when you could buy, you know, pay um, you know, 30 40% less for uh, earnings growth that's, that's higher? And that's, that's what we're doing in those sectors that I'm talking about that are coming off very low bases. And, um, and that's where we're focused. Uh, the other thing is macro charts put out an interesting thing uh, called the daily sentiment indicator. It's just another sentiment reading. And what he's showing here is that um, this could drive the advance further. In 33 years of data, 31 years had a similar year-end rally. This still looks almost identical to 2019, and there's there's room to get more overbought is basically what he's saying, and that's basically what I'm saying. Yeah, I see that we're overbought. Yeah, I see there's some some pockets of froth, and it can push up a little bit higher because everyone's noticing it, and you got to get to the point where people say it's it's different, cash is trash, and and that's when the trapdoor can lift. And you see he's he shows how these uh, consolidations they can just trend. Uh, for some time before that sentiment just really gets off the charts. So that's that. Uh, coronavirus cases, the seven-day moving average has really rolled over. I know we've got the Christmas thing to worry about, but we'll see. I mean, more. remember, half of the equation is coming down as now three million people are vaccinated, and it's, it picks up the rate of changes going every day. So this, this is good news. Um, also, what is good news in terms of the recovery trade is that uh, TSA travel has been over a million for the last five days, which is only 50% of, you know, basically, you know, 45 to 50, depending on the day, 40 to 50% of last year's year-on-year -year travel, which is mind-boggling when you think about on um, April 14th was the low, so yesterday we had 1.163 million people go through TSA to fly. On April 14th, it was 87,000. So we're up, you know, 12x or something like that, more than that, 13, 13 plus x since the lows. This, the, everything's coming back, and this is pre-vaccine, so this is really positive to see. The key data for this week was um, crude oil, huge draw, 6 million barrels versus estimates of 2.5. So that theme continues to play, which we've talked about quite a bit over the last few months. Uh, Chicago PMIs beat. That was nice to see. Uh, pending home sales were a little weak. That's probably due to the regional shutdowns you're seeing on the coast and in different areas. Uh, gasoline inventories were also a draw and continuing claims continue to trend down. That's the most important number. And even initial jobless claims beat. So that these are, these are all moving in the right direction. 
And that's it for this week. So I'd like to thank everyone for listening all year uh, on a weekly basis and tuning in and, you know, reading our articles. I want to wish everyone literally the best of everything in 2021. I know it was a tough year for quite a lot of people out there, but we're turning turning a corner here and, uh, and 2021 is going to be phenomenal. So I uh, look forward to uh, having you join me in 2021. We'll be back next week, same time, same place, and make it a great one. Bye-bye.